This week's parsha is Parsha's Vayikra. It's Vayikra means the call. Hashem called to Moshe. And of course, this is a brand new book. We finished Genesis, Bracious, we finished Exodus, Shemos. And now we have Leviticus, Vayikra, a whole new book. A very interesting, fascinating material that we're going to study together. Now, I want to apologize. Usually I upload the classes on Sunday because I give a class on Sunday. Uh, now it's Tuesday night. And I'm late this week, and I apologize. And the reason why I was late is because I did not have a class on Sunday. Instead, I flew to New York, and I was there to celebrate the very inspirational 200th anniversary of the Mir Yeshiva. They made a huge celebration to celebrate their bicentennial anniversary. It's the oldest yeshiva in existence. In fact, it's the only yeshiva that did not have any interruptions, despite the fact that there was World War I that upended all of Europe, and of course World War II that caused tremendous devastation and chaos, uh, and despite the fact the yeshiva was right there uh, on the front lines of the war, they managed to escape all the way across Asia on the Trans-Siberian Railroad and reestablish a yeshiva with students and faculty in Kobe, Japan, and then a year later in Shanghai, in occupied Shanghai on the Chinese mainland. And it's just a remarkable story that you have a yeshiva that while the entire Jewish world is going up in the inferno of the Holocaust in World War II, you have an entire yeshiva with 300 students and faculty that is existing as if nothing stopped it uh, halfway across the world. And uh, the theme that was being invoked again and again was the fact that the Almighty promised the Jewish people that Torah will never cease. And therefore, there's always going to be a central institution of Torah learning amongst the Jewish people. And it's pretty remarkable that, you know, t- today, and, you know, I was meritorious enough to study in the same yeshiva that the Almighty chose to be the refuge of the Jewish people, despite the fact that all of European Jewry was ablaze, still the future and the seeds of Jewish continuity are being sown all the way across the world and continue, uh, the Mir Shiva is, to, to be a beacon of Torah in the world. So that was very inspirational. So what first thing I want to say, next thing I want to say before we get started is that while I was in New York, I went to visit an old friend of mine, actually someone that I studied with together when we were in yeshiva together in, in the Mir Yeshiva in Israel. And that's, uh, his name is Rabbi Moshe Gewurz. And the reason why I went to visit him is because he chose to voluntarily donate a kidney to a stranger. And this, I think, in the general world is unheard of. You know, if, if if one of your family members, someone you're really close to, they need a kidney, that's one thing. But to donate a kidney to someone you don't even know, you don't even know the name of the recipient, that almost does not exist in any other community. And it's a total uh, anomaly. It doesn't happen with the exception of the Torah community. And uh, he, my friend, signed up to be part of a database and he gets a phone call five weeks ago, that there's a perfect match, and there's a woman uh, from Boston, she's a mother of three, and she 
she needs his kidney and she's a perfect match and he could save her life. And he made the very courageous decision to take the kidney that's extra. You know, the Almighty gives us two kidneys, one for us and one to give away. And he went and he donated just today. Today, Tuesday morning, he went through surgery to donate his kidney to this mother, uh, 33-year-old mother. Uh, And I want to read to you here. Um, They sent out, I saw a letter from this woman's son. Quote, she said she he's addressing it to the donor. Now, there's no names here because no one knows. They're, everyone's identity is anonymous. And the reason why they do this is so you shouldn't extort them for money, of course. Uh, I thank you so much for saving my mother's life. My 12th birthday was two days ago, and you gave me the best gift. Be'ezus Hashem, with the, with the help of God, my mother will be healthy for my bar mitzvah. Hashem should give you and your family good health, and Hatzlacha, and success in everything. Think about that. Uh, you have a child whose mother, uh, the likelihood of her surviving with, uh, with kidney failure is very slim, and certainly not to, to thrive. And now my friend, who is an inspiration to me and to everyone really, just chose to give his, and to have them cut him up, and take out the extra kidney, and give it to her, and he's going to be incapacitated for a while, but it's pretty remarkable. So I want to dedicate this class in the merit of the spirit, uh, the speedy recovery of the donor, whose name is Moshe Yitzchak ben Chana Rachel, and the recipient, Tamar Esther Bas Leah. And I also want to make a note that it's pretty inspiring that we are part of a Torah community where such occurrences are commonplace uh, all the time. There's organizations that are dedicated to uh, people who are committed just out of sheer altruism to help others in need and donate their uh, their extra kidney to them. So that's pretty remarkable. So the class is dedicated uh, in appreciation of this act of altruism and in the merit of the spirit recovery of both donor and recipient. Okay, so the verse... And the, the, the Parsha starts off with the Almighty calling over to Moshe and speaking to him from the tent of meeting, from the, uh, the, uh, the tabernacle that contains the ark and all the vessels that we talked about in Exodus. Now, the bulk of the, well, I guess the entirety of the Parsha is going to be dealing with sacrifices, and that's going to be one of the main themes of the book. And of course, the most important question for us is, uh, to try to understand and to bring the idea of sacrifices a little bit more closer to them. Of course, it's hard for us to see value. You're taking a, an animal, all these different kinds of animals, and you're you're bringing it to the temple, to the mishkan, to the tabernacle, and you're slaughtering it. We don't seem to... It's not, it's not immediately readily apparent to us what the value of such activities are. And if you read the parsha from beginning to end, you'll see... Uh, about five or six different classifications, general categories of sacrifices. And all told, you're talking about 30 different sacrifices that are enumerated, the various laws and details of their uh, of their offering in this Parsha. So, of course, that's the theme of the Parsha. And the most important question as we begin is, what's the idea of 
uh, of sacrifices in general, and how do we make, you know pull out some valuable lessons for ourselves? But before we, before we begin, there's a the, the the first verse is sort of an introductory verse. Hashem calls Moshe and speaks to him from the Olam of the tent of meeting. So Rashi tells us that this uh, this preface where the Almighty calls Moshe and speaks to him, it's only told to us here once. Uh, every other time it says Hashem just speaks to Moshe to tell, tell the Jewish people. But here it has, it has the introduction. Uh, but in truth, it happened every time the Almighty speaks to Moshe, goes tell the Jewish people, it was preceded by the Almighty calling him. And uh, this, says Rashi, this is a, uh, this is a term of endearance, uh, of, of endearment, of of love, of closeness. This is the lingo that the angels use to call, to call out to someone that you care about a lot. And there's an interesting note here. Uh, so Rashi tells us the purpose of this verse, this introductory verse. Why does it show up over here is my question. If every time the Almighty spoke to Moshe, he had this introduction, maybe he should have told us this to us earlier. And I want to suggest just as an idea, that now the Jewish people, they have the tabernacle. And as we saw at the end of Exodus, the tabernacle is a permanent dwelling place of God amongst the Jewish people. There's an elevation of the relationship of the Jewish people headed by Moshe and God. And therefore, perhaps the reason why the Torah finds it necessary to give us this introduction, this warm relationship that's being uh, that's being highlighted, being manifested in this verse over here to tell us, maybe to hint at the fact that now we went through Exodus and all the ups and downs and all the tribulations and all the stories and all the pitfalls, but now the Jewish people were forgiven for the sin of the golden calf. They have a permanent dwelling of God amongst them. And, and now it's important to stress that there is this new heightened love amongst uh, the God, the Almighty, and the Jewish people. And there's another critical note here. Rashi says a very powerful idea that's very broadly applicable. And that is that if you look at the Torah scroll, you notice there's these little breaks. There's uh, if you if you look at the like a page or a column of text, you'll have these white spaces, these blank spaces, and that's to break up every section. So Rashi here tells us that why did the Almighty uh, find it necessary to give a space between each section, each idea that's being conveyed. So Rashi says, to give time for Moshe to contemplate and to ruminate and to dwell upon every section and every idea. And so much, and how much more so for someone who's studying not from God, but from a, a regular person, how much important how important it is to let the ideas sink in and i feel that um let's say in a podcast form i try to give rapid fire i want to make people who take the time to listen to what i have to say to give them their money's worth or their time or their attention's worth so i'm going to come and i'm going to talk and i'm going to talk for an hour or whatever it is and whoever listens I appreciate it, and I hope they have something valuable and useful from it. 
But really what I should do is I should speak and say an idea and stop and let people just have some white space, just some empty uh, dead air and let people think about it and let the idea maybe settle with them. Let them, uh, you know, let it bounce around in their head and to let it penetrate and impact them. Um, But I don't do that. But I want to suggest if someone would like to maybe take the lesson that Rashi is telling us here at the beginning of an entire new book of Chumash, the very first verse highlights the fact that whenever you have a powerful idea, it's it's great, but to really make it impactful, you have to dwell upon it. You have to think about it. You have to allow it to be absorbed because it's very easy for something to go in one ear and out the other. But even if it doesn't just go a beeline from one ear to the other ear, even if it ricochets across your skull, so that's, of course, better. But still, for something to really have a long-term impact, it's important for someone to stop and think about it. So maybe I would suggest if you hear an idea that you find very powerful or intriguing, Just pause it and think about it and take the lesson that we see right over here at the beginning of Leviticus to heart to take powerful ideas and dwell upon them. That said, let's quickly start to talk about sacrifices. How do we understand the idea of sacrifices? I want to go through a few of the opinions brought down from the commentators. Uh, The first one is the Rambam. The Rambam, at the end of the laws of Me'ilah, the laws that deal with infringing upon holiness, we know that um, the coffers of the temple and all the things that are consecrated and designated for holiness, it cannot be used for mundane purposes. And at the end of these laws, the Rambam gives us an essay about uh, about the ideas of chukim. Chok is a law in the Torah that we cannot fully wrap our heads around them. And the Ram tells us that generally speaking, it's important for someone to try to contemplate mitzvahs of the Torah and to try to understand the lesson and the meaning behind it as much as they can possibly absorb. However, with regards to some mitzvos that we cannot find the reason, it's important for us to not discount them and to not ignore them and to not reject and repudiate them because the Almighty has much more intelligence than we have. And therefore, if he thinks something is valuable, it is valuable. We may not be intelligent enough to understand it, but it, it truly is the you know if god decides that it's valuable it truly is valuable irrespective of our understanding so we shouldn't try to reject it in fact we should try to embrace it because it does inspire us to have a little bit of faith and a little bit of humility to say this is a mitzvah from god and even though i don't understand it it's important for me to do it because god thinks it's important and then the ramam there ends V'chol hakarbanos, and all the sacrifices, all the sacrifices are all chukim, are all laws that human intellect cannot necessarily wrap its head around. 
Yet, the sages tell us that in the merit of the work of the sacrifices, the world is sustained. Because what really holds the world afloat is when people do things because of God. If I do a mitzvah that I understand, then of course there's the risk of me doing it not as a mitzvah, not because God told me, but because it made sense to me. And therefore, how is that a mitzvah? I'm doing what I would have done irrespective of God telling me to do it. A mitzvah means a commandment. But when a person does a mitzvah that they don't understand, well, what are they demonstrating then? They're demonstrating that their behavior is governed by God. And that is a very powerful act of faith. And therefore, that has the power to inspire others, but also it's bringing God into the world. It's, 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 it's a person saying, my intellect alone is nothing. There's a grander reality called God, and that is what is able to infuse the world with the merit needed for its continued existence. A very powerful idea the Rambam says. And generally, it's a good it's a good theory to have in our pocket when we get to some mitzvahs in uh, many mitzvahs in the book of Leviticus that don't seem to be immediately um, they, they don't resonate with us necessarily at the beginning. We don't understand them. We don't understand them. Okay, we have an opportunity now to have an act of faith. That's what the Rambam says in the laws of Meila. Now, there's a very famous Rambam who's in the book of the Morin Nevuchim, the Guide to the Perplexed, where he writes an entirely different reason why we have sacrifices. And what he says is, it's a really dramatic idea, though problematic, as we'll see, that there was an existing custom in the world for people to do animal sacrifice. And that was not necessarily the product of the Jewish culture, it was the pagan culture, the idolaters. This is what they used to do. In the entire world, what they would do is they would take their animals and bring them and sacrifice them for their deity. Now, the Almighty comes along and gives us Torah. And he gives Torah to a nation that spent a very long time in Egypt, surrounded by idolaters, behaving in the mode of sacrifices for their pagan deities. And says the Rambam that what the Almighty does here with instructing us to give sacrifices to him is not to change the modality of worship, just to change the venue to whom the worship is directed. So therefore... In the Jewish people's mind, in their milieu, how do you worship, or what one of the methods by which you worship your God was through animal sacrifice. And that is what they saw amongst the pagans, and that was kind of in their heads. That this is how you worship. So the man says, you know what? I'm going to give you a kosher outlet, so to speak, to fulfill this mode of worship. You want to worship like this? This is the way you are accustomed to worshiping, broadly speaking? Now do that for God. That's what the Ramam says. 
And of course, this is problematic in the Ramban, very famous Ramban at the beginning of this week's Parsha in, in chapter 1, verse 9. He has a whole essay. He does not like this idea of the Rambam in the Guide to the Perplexed. And he brings a bunch of questions. For example, he says, well, Noah brought sacrifices and uh, Cain and Abel brought sacrifices. And that's before idolatry existed. Noah was just him and his kids. There's no idolatry. If sacrifices are limited to idolatry, to just being a kosher outlet to the mode of behavior that was commonplace amongst the idol worshippers, then it would be insufficient to explain every instance of sacrifices in the Torah. So he doesn't wholesale reject the Rambam's idea, but he says it's insufficient. And therefore he has he adds another one, which I think is as close as we could get to a consensus idea regarding sacrifices. And I think this is the one we're going to use to understand this Parsha. And the Rabban says that sacrifices are an act that is designed to evoke repentance. And he presents a very vivid image. He says, well, man behaves and a, a man's actions, man's behavior, that's a confluence of their thought, of their speech, of their action. And when they sin, it's it's almost the person in his entirety committed an act against God. Now, the sacrifices is a means of undoing the sin, of dismantling the sin. And therefore, and he goes through all the various different aspects of bringing a sacrifice. For example, every sacrifice you have to have oral confession. Well, if the sin was a product of speech, then how do you fix that? Through speech. And therefore, the speech of the sacrifice is designed to undo the speech of the sin. And then the owner takes his hands and places his hands above the animal that he's going to sacrifice. So what's he doing? He's doing an action of repentance to undo an action of sin. And then they take the animal and they burn it in the fire. Well, what happens? There's the uh, the fire, which is, so to speak, uh, the well, they, they burn the innards of the animal, the innards, kind of the inner workings of man, the, the man's mind and the man's lust and all those aspects that contributed to sin, the person has to see the animal's corresponding limbs being burned, i.e. we're trying to expunge the person of his evil deeds via the sacrifice. And then also, uh, the the Ramban here adds that the animal is really supposed to be instead of the person. When a person sins, well, what's a sin? A sin is an act of mutiny against God. God said, do this. And you said, no, I don't want to do this. Or God said, don't do this. And you said, I'm going to do it anyhow. Every sin is equivalent to rejection of God. Well, what is deserving of someone who rejects God? 
they should be killed. How could a person have continued existence when they rebel against God? Is there a greater sin? Is there a greater reason of a treason and rebellion against God than someone to sin, someone to go deliberately against the explicit instructions of God? They really ought to be executed. But the Almighty says, no, 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 I don't want you to be executed. I don't want you to die. I want you to repent. Well, how do you repent? You bring a sacrifice. And the sacrifice is an animal. And you know who else is an animal? Us. Humans are animals. We have a body. The body is very similar to the animal. And there's many verses and sources in Jewish literature that make this connection between the human body and an animal. When we sin, that's not our soul acting. Our soul wouldn't want to sin. It's our body acting. It's our proverbial animal. It's the part of us that's like a beast that's behaving and rebelling against God. And therefore, we take another animal and we slaughter it. And you know, who is really deserving? Which animal is really deserving to be slaughtered? It's us. It's our. It's not our soul, of course. Our soul didn't want to sin. It's our body. But the Almighty says, you know what? Take a different animal and transfer, so to speak, the culpability that really belongs to your body, to, i.e., the beast within you, or the, the, the portion of you that's an animal, and confer that guilt upon a different animal and kill that animal and take the animal's blood and spray it and burn that body. Because really, and the lesson is very powerful, you see that, you go, you go to the temple and you bring the sacrifice and you're supposed to think to yourself, really, I should be the one, i.e. my body should be the one that should be punished like this animal is is being killed. Why? Because I did an act of rebellion against God. And therefore, its blood is there to atone for my blood. Its life for my life. Its limbs for my limb. Etc., etc. Thus, says the Ramban, that really it's a, it's a powerful experience for a person. When they bring a sacrifice, it's an opportunity for them to change their lives. First of all, they're being told, really, there's a part of you that's acting like an animal. That that's in itself is a very powerful idea. Uh, to be reminded of the fact that we have this duality, this dual existence, this body and soul. The body is like an animal, the soul is like an angel. And unfortunately, sometimes our internal beast and our internal animal is able to govern what we do, which is astonishing. If you have an angel and an animal, why would you choose to follow the advice of the animal? Well, unfortunately, that's the human condition. That's what we do. You bring a sacrifice and you think about that. And you remember that. And then you take the animal and you kill it. Well, what's that supposed to evoke within you? It's supposed to inspire and galvanize a person to say, I have an animal within me that's causing me to go awry. I have to find a way to kill that as well. I have to find a way to empower my soul and weaken my body and to become more angelic, more angel-like, more soulful and stop making these terrible blunders in my life choices to act like an animal, to sin and to rebel against God. 
I bring a sacrifice, I'm going to think about that. So thus, the Rabban really, in one fell swoop here, he's able to really reorient our perspective. It's not just some sort of sacrifice, just we liked the idea of blood and we like to kill animals for no reason. No, there's a very powerful emotion of repentance that is being evoked here by bringing a sacrifice. A very powerful idea, and I think that it's really a good rule of thumb to take with us uh, with regards to every sacrifice that we're going to talk about. Of course, in the the parasha, we're going to see all the details. The details, of course, are critical for us, but the general idea of these being decisions that someone is doing, or these being activities that someone does, that are not just limited to the action itself, but also the byproduct of the action is very critical, that it has to bring about change and repentance. It's, it, it'll, it makes the idea of sacrifice much more palatable for us, and also it makes it relevant to us. Because the fact that we brought sacrifices... And we had to remind ourselves that we have a body that's like an animal that needs to be quelled. That didn't change when the temple was destroyed and the sacrifices ceased. Today, we have the same exact problem. And we have a mitzvah called repentance, which is fulfilling the same role as the sacrifice. But unfortunately, I I would argue that it's not as powerful when you have a sacrifice, you see the animal and you think about, this is really me. I'm no different. I'm also behaving like an animal and I deserve to get what the animal gets. It's very visual and very vivid and very visceral. And I think is designed to inspire us to change. Today, we still need to change, but unfortunately, it's hard to come by it. But we learn that we learn these parshas, we read about, uh, we learn these Torah sections and we read about these sacrifices, it's an opportunity to try to inspire ourselves today to take at least the lesson of sacrifices and make it part of our lives today. So the first section of sacrifices is the Ola. The Ola, it's called Ola is an elevation. Ola means to go up. And there's different kinds of Olas, different animals that it can be brought from. And the hallmark of this sacrifice is that every part of it gets burnt. And there's many, many details here with all the sacrifices, um, what animals it comes from, all the various laws about what how to process it, and also what to do with the meat. You have a lot of meat. Do you burn the meat? Do you distribute the meat? Does the owner eat the meat? Does the Cohen eat the meat? Does no one eat the meat? When do you let it eat the meat? A lot of very uh, complex minutia of details. We're trying to go through them Quickly, just the general ideas, because I don't want to, I don't want to bore you with the details. Um, so the first thing is the ola gets entirely burnt. It's it's from a male, where it's slaughtered specifically. Uh, the verse number four here, chapter one, says again brings the invokes what the Ramban says that the owner leans his hands on top of the offering, and it should become acceptable for him to atone. So right away we see. Uh, credence for the Ramban's argument that sacrifices are there to engender atonement and repentance. You slaughter the animal and the Kohen 
takes the blood and throws the blood on the altar all around. And then you skin the animal, cut up the pieces, and then you burn them on the altar in the Mishkan and in the, in, in, in the temple. Now, interesting note here, the majority of the work done with a sacrifice is done only by the Kohen, the sons of Aaron. However, an Israelite is not allowed to do many of these activities, but there's one particular activity that an Israelite can do, namely to slaughter the animal. So you'll notice in verse 4, I'm sorry, in verse 5, it says that he shall slaughter the animal, and the sons of Aaron should bring the blood. So only after the animal's slaughter, only then does it become does the word become the exclusive domain of the Kohen, and therefore, if the owner or any other Israelite wants to do the slaughtering, they're allowed to do it. Okay, so that's the first one. The first one is is a first is the Ola brought from the large animals. Then we learn about the Ola brought from the small animals. And finally, we learn about the Ola brought from the birds. So there's an interesting thing here. Verse 14 tells us, if it's brought from the birds, there's only certain kinds of birds that are admissible. So for example, a chicken is a kosher animal, but you cannot bring a chicken as a sacrifice. The only animals that are, the only birds that are kosher for sacrifices are turtle doves that are mature and young doves. And it's interesting here, the Talmud tells us that the reason why these animals were chosen, these birds and no others, is because these are the ones that are monogamous. When you have a a, a turtle dove, Talmud tells us, once it finds its mate, it never consorts with a different animal for the rest of his life. Says the commentary here, that this is a lesson for the Jewish people. We, as well, we made our choice. We selected the Almighty, the Holy One, blessed is He, to be the one to cleave to. And we're reminding ourselves by selecting these particular animals that these are the ones that are that have fidelity to their mate, we too must remind ourselves to have fidelity to our mate, so to speak, i.e. our commitment. We have to maintain our commitment to God. We committed to be his people and to not waver from that and not to try to look for alternatives. As opposed to the doves, the doves, we can only have them when they're young. Because when they get older, there is friction amongst the spouses, i.e. the male dove and the female dove, and therefore you can only sacrifice them when they're young and before they are mature enough to consort with other doves. As opposed to, let's say, chickens, uh, where chickens are always used in the Talmud as examples of promiscuous animals. And therefore... Such an animal, despite it being kosher, is not the kind of image that we want to strike here at the temple when we're talking 
about repentance and atonement and coming closer to God, that's not exactly the animal that we want to use. So those are the first three things. Talk about the three different kinds of olas. And then chapter two has an entirely different kind of sacrifice. It's not an animal. It's actually a what's known as a, a mincha or a meal offering. It's, it's a flower offering that has oil. It has frankincense. And there's five or six different kinds of these offerings where the Kohen takes the flower and he takes a certain amount of it and he makes he mixes it with oil and he put part of part of it is given so to speak uh, to the holy which is not eaten by anyone it's given for God and the whatever's left over is given to the Kohen and his children and some these are some uh, the, the different kinds of these offerings are either in an oven or in different kinds of pans. And interestingly, there's an interesting thing at the end over here. In verse 11, we're told that all of these meal offerings should not be made out of chametz and they should not be used, not use any honey for them. Really curious idea that we're not allowed to use leaven, chametz, and we're not allowed to use honey. And the question is, why not? Like, What's the lesson behind that? So that's number one. And then number two, we see in the following verse that they have to have salt. So they're not allowed to have chametz, leaven. They're not allowed to have honey, but they must have salt. And in fact, every single sacrifice has to have salt. So it's interesting that these there's certain ingredients that are on the white list, not just on the white list, they're on the mandatory list. And then there's other ingredients that are not allowed. And the question is, of course, why would that be so? So one of the commentaries, the Kleocharis, has a fascinating idea. It tells us that the honey... It's sweet. It's something that, that, that people covet. They desire it. And that's a reference to the Yetzirah. Now, Chametz as well, the Talmud tells, a very famous Talmud, that the Yetzirah is nicknamed the yeast, the leaven in the bread, the famous Gemara in Brachos. And thus, these two ingredients, the leaven and the honey, are both references to the Yetzirah. So how come these are not admissible? So he says a critical insight here that the Yetzirah is a, is a necessary component of life. In fact, the Talmud tells us if we didn't have a Yetzirah, the world would not have continuity. People wouldn't get married. People wouldn't build houses. People wouldn't plant vineyards. The world would be stagnant, and that's not a good thing. That's a terrible thing. And the Midrash goes as far as to tell us that the Yetzirah is exceedingly good. And we mentioned this last week. There's something really good about the Yetzirah. But the critical difference is that the Yetzirah itself, on its own, independently has no value. Yes, you need a Yetzirah because otherwise the world wouldn't continue. But on its own, it's not like Torah. Torah has intrinsic value. It on its own, 
on an island, so to speak, just it is valuable. As opposed to Yetzirah-oriented themes like the honey or like the chametz, those are only there because they enable you to have Torah or enable you to have other things. And therefore, when we're talking about sacrifices that are there to create this, what the verse says, a reach nichoach, a very pleasant offering for God, we only do things that are complete, that are perfect. And something that's only there to facilitate, to enable something else, but in itself has no intrinsic value, like the honey or like the leaven, is not something that is admissible to this criteria of being something that has independent value. Very powerful idea from the Kliyakar. Now, salt, everyone here is talking about what, what's, what, what's, why, why, do we, why must we have salt? And everyone says their own interpretations, salt preserves things, salt makes it tasty. The Ramban has, an, has a nice idea where he talks salt is, on one hand, it's positive, it's water. On the other hand, it's destructive. If you put salt in the, in the ground, things won't grow. And he's kind of a, saying that, that sacrifices are a double-edged sword. If you embrace them, it's amazing. If you reject them, it's, it's disastrous, just like salt. That's what he says. I want to look at the Rambam. The Rambam, quoted by the Ramban, he says that the, the idolaters, when they would bring sacrifices, they would never use salt. They would be disgusted by salt. Why? Because salt absorbs the blood. And they didn't want the blood to be destroyed, to be absorbed. And therefore, they, uh, they wanted it to be nice and red and juicy. And for us, because we're trying to reject and repudiate the idolaters, the Torah commands us every single sacrifice must have salt. The idolaters don't allow salt, and we specifically go to the opposite extreme, we mandate that everything has salt. That's what the Ramban quotes from the Rambam. Now, I was thinking that this seems to contradict what the Rambam's opinion with regards to sacrifices in general are. We said, we quoted the Ramban himself, quoted from the Rambam, that sacrifices, according to the Rambam, are there to allow us to behave the way the Gentiles behave. They bring sacrifices, we bring sacrifices. And therefore, to not, to not change, so to speak, how worship of a deity is done. And yet here he says the exact opposite. Here he says you're specifically supposed to change the way you worship an, a, a, a deity. So what's the idea? It seems like the Ram is inconsistent. Which one is it? And I think the idea is a very powerful one. Yes, the reason why we have sacrifices is to try to find a kosher alternative for a bad habit. And that's something that's sometimes necessary. However, specifically because you are trying to do something positive, you have to signal with absolute clarity that this is doing a mitzvah. Therefore, we're trying to do a mitzvah here. How do we do the mitzvah, says the Rambam? We do the mitzvah by taking the Yetzirah, or taking, by the, t- taking the, 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 the perspective that we're accustomed to, and injecting it 
into a mitzvah. But because it's a mitzvah, it's important for us to make the clear distinction that this is not something that what the idolaters do. This is different. And therefore, we have to specifically say they don't do salt. We're going to demonstrate that we're not like them. And we're specifically going to do salt. Moreover, it's the one ingredient that's necessary for every sacrifice across the board. I think this is a good idea, broadly speaking. Sometimes it's a good tactic to say that we're not going to reject the ways of the Gentiles, let's say. We're going to do it in a kosher environment. We're going to have a kosher outlet for a non-kosher habit. However, there's a tremendous risk in doing that because sometimes the lines might be blurred. You're behaving like this. You're bringing sacrifices. The idolaters next door are also bringing sacrifices. And there's the risk of not recognizing that we're doing a mitzvah for God and they're doing the, the worst sin possible. And therefore, specifically in such an instance, we have to make note of the thing that they're most careful about in their realm to not have salt, to go to the opposite stream and say we have to have salt in every one of our sacrifices. Uh, so I think the Rambam, specifically because he says that sacrifices are there as a permissible alternative to the general ways of the non-Jews, of the idolaters. Therefore, he specifically is the one that's going to understand this clause that we have to have salt as a way of counteracting the potential danger accrued or involved with such behavior. Chapter 3 begins with the laws of a shlomim. Shlomim is a different kind of sacrifice. It's a peace offering. It's an offering that's done not necessarily as a result of a sin, but it's someone's donation. They want to bring a sacrifice. It's not a. It's not done for a specific sin. Now, it's important to note, we are working with the premise that the objective of sacrifices is to uh, is to bring atonement and thus if there's no sin why is there a need for atonement so the chinuch one of the commentaries he writes commentaries on the torah and mitzvos he writes that even when someone brings a voluntary sacrifice that still has the powerful impact and the powerful lesson of bringing a sacrifice to inspire atonement. Because every human, every human has the inborn beast, the body. And the power of the sacrifice is to weaken the body and to strengthen the soul. And even though even, even though there's no specific sin that a person's, coming, a person's coming to address, still it encourages the reorientation of priorities when a person brings a sacrifice and has to see the proverbial beast, their body, being diminished, and that will encourage them more broadly, holistically speaking, uh, to model themselves after that, empower their soul and weaken their body. So various different kinds of sacrifices are done as peace offerings. And again, the verse is very detailed in how exactly it's done, what... um, 
what parts of it's removed and how it's removed and how it's burnt, if the peace offering could be done from a livestock, from the from the cattle, male or female, from the flock, male or female, uh, a goat as well, and a very uh, comprehensive laws in chapter 3. Chapter 4 is a different kind of sacrifice. It's a sin offering. This is when someone does a specific sin unintentionally, and they want to atone for that. How do they do that? They bring a sacrifice called a chatas or a sin offering. So it goes through a series of different sins and individuals that sin and what the requisite sacrifice would be to atone for that. So the first one begins with is a coin gadol. The coin gadol sins and brings guilt upon the people. Then he brings a young bull that's not blemished as a sin offering. Now there's an important note here. Rashi points out that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, he sins, yet the way that verse describes it, that it's bringing guilt upon the entire people. So Rashi tells us, because this Kohen is not an individual, he's not a citizen, he's a leader, and he is tasked with being the spiritual oversight of the people, therefore his sin is equivalent to the sin of the entire nation. It's his role to be the oversight and the, to pray on behalf of the Jewish people, and therefore when he sins, it uh, it brings guilt upon them all. And I, I want to add to this, not to add, but to just give another example of this. The Gemara tells us, we know the halacha is, that if someone kills unintentionally, they are punished, they're not executed, as they would be if they killed and murdered intentionally. Someone accidentally kills someone else, they have to go to a city of refuge. They have to pick up and move to a different town and live there. And how long did they live before? They lived there until a coin gadol dies. The Gemara asks the question, why is the death of the coin gadol, why is that what's going to allow the unintentional murderer to be uh, to complete his sentence and to go back home. And the Gemara says, because he is the leader of the people, he has to pray for the nation, and therefore the fact that anything bad happens in the community, in the Jewish community, in the Jewish world, that is on his shoulders. It means the coin Gadol is carrying with him the weight of the entire people. When he sins, who's responsible? It's guilt for the entire nation. And when he is lax in his prayer, what happens? Everyone else could potentially sin. I was thinking, let me expand this idea to the Jewish nation as a whole. Our role in the world is to be God's representatives, God's ambassadors. We, thanks to Abraham, accept upon ourselves the mission of Tikkun Olam to be responsible for the whole world. Thus, our mitzvos impact not just us, but the entire world. And conversely, our sins are not limited to negatively influencing us. They influence the whole world negatively. So this really amplifies the responsibility of our behavior because it's not just us at stake. It's the entire world, really. And in fact, you can look at the wonderful book, the Nefesh HaChaim. He spends many, many chapters 
honing this point to say that one act done by one Jew on planet Earth, the impact that it has in the whole world and the whole spiritual world as well is unfathomable. The way it's amplified in 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 orders of magnitude larger than it would be or than we would t- tend to assume that it would be. So again, the verse is very deliberate in all the various um, processes done to this sacrifice. So he brings it, he leans it, and he slaughters it, and he catches the blood, and he dips his finger in the blood and sprinkles it seven times towards the curtain of the holy, towards the curtain that separates the holy from the holy of holies. Where he places the blood, what he does with the actual animal, he has to separate the fat from the the fat that covers the innards, from the fat that's above the innards. Again, goes through the entire anatomy of the animal, what happens to every part of it. And uh, then in verse 13, it's it's a a different sin offering uh, when there was a mistake. The entire nation made a mistake. What happens then? Um, so this is not just the coin Gadol sinning, it's the entire nation making a mistake. There was, there was an error that became so pervasive. Rashi tells us because of the Sanhedrin, the rabbinic oversight of the people, they allowed a mistake to become disseminated amongst the people. So then the entire community has to bring a sacrifice. And there's an important nuance in verse 17 where the description of where the blood is sprinkled on that curtain differs from the way it's described only 11 verses earlier. 11 verses earlier, it's described that you sprinkle the blood towards the curtain of the holy. Whereas in verse 17, it merely says you sprinkle the blood towards the curtain. So why would it change the name of the curtain in 11 verses? It takes up the word holy. So Rashi says a very powerful parable. You have a king that there's rebellion. And if there's partial rebellion, then he could still withstand, so to speak. He still has the majority in favor. He's betrayed, yes, okay, but he still has loyalty from the majority of the populace. But if the entirety of the nation, they abandon him, then the government, so to speak, falls. What this means is, is that when the coin Godel sins, yeah, it's terrible, it's a sin, the guilt amongst the whole people. But still, it's not a sin that encompasses the entire nation. So still one person sinning. And therefore, the holiness, i.e. God's presence amongst us, is not diminished. However, when we sin as an entire nation, then the curtain, so to speak, is not holy anymore. There's a certain degree of diminishing of our holiness because when we all sin, we're rebelling against God, rebelling against God, then therefore, so to speak, his kingdom and his reign upon us is diminished slightly. Uh, then in verse 22, it talks about what happens if you have a ruler who makes a, makes a mistake. 
Uh, we learn about what happens if you have a an individual that makes a sin and it brings a sin offering, various different animals that he could bring. And in chapter 5, it's it describes another kind of sin, a specific kind of sin, where someone makes a someone's a witness and has to swear, um, but he doesn't testify, uh, or that's one kind of sin. Someone touches an uncon- a, a contaminated animal, another kind of sin. There's a list of sins here, and what kind of sacrifice it needs it needs to bring. So it depends. This is this this is the sliding scale. This is the various tax brackets. If he's very He's richer, then he brings a more expensive sacrifice. If he's poorer, he brings a cheaper sacrifice. If he's really, really poor, it's even cheaper, and etc. If he's so poor, he has to bring just like a meal offering equivalent. Now, the next kind of sacrifice is someone who commits treachery and sins unintentionally against God's holies. He should bring his guilt offering to Hashem. This refers not to a an error, a mistake that someone did, rather a, a, a sin that someone did out of guilt. And therefore it's more uh, it's it, it's he's more liable for that. And then lastly, what happens if someone made a sin but they're not even aware or they there's a doubt whether they made a sin, then they still bring a sacrifice. Given the fact that they may have sinned, they have to bring a sacrifice. Another example of this is someone gives a list of someone who lies to his friend regarding a loan or a robbery or or a lost object, something interpersonal. And what would someone need to do if they uh, stole and they swore falsely in one of these instances? So I want to just quickly, before we finish here, I want to look at this Rashi on verse 21. Because verse 21 reads, if a person will sin and commit a treachery against Hashem by lying to his comrade, so the verse here is saying two things. Someone's sinning to God by stealing from his friend. And Rashi's trying to figure out why is the sin attributed against God when he's stealing from his friend? And he says a very interesting idea. When someone lends money, some of this business, they have a contract. And the contract is, that, that that's their proof, that's their evidence. But when someone just gives his friend something and he trusts his friend, there's a third party in this transaction, that's God. When I, when me and someone else, we have a transaction amongst us two, and it's in confidence, then there's actually a third party there, and that's God. And therefore, if I renege upon my my duties as one member of this transaction, says the verse, a person commits treachery against God, because God is a part of this transaction too. Very powerful, just to the extent by which every single sin, we're trying to repent and atone for it with these sacrifices. So I think the general theme of the Parsha is that we now have a tabernacle, we have God amongst us, 
And we have a very powerful tool called sacrifices. And this is going to ensure, or at least enable, or be a possible avenue for a person to achieve atonement by achieving repentance. How do you achieve repentance? Through a sacrifice. You take the animal, and you kill the animal, and you think. You think about the fact that you too behave like an animal by sinning, and thus you too deserve to be killed. But by seeing that, hopefully it will inspire a person to repent.